It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to this episode of Kennedy Saves the World. And today I'm with Ollie London, and he wants to save kids from sort of the gender obsession that's happening in society. And it's it's scrambling some brains unnecessarily. And um, we're taking some very extreme approaches to some issues that might be better resolved with a more moderate path. Um, Ollie, welcome to Kennedy Saves the World. Thanks. Here to save the world with you, Kennedy. So, yeah. So your book, Gender Madness. Here's Ollie's book. Oh, that's Ollie. And this is his book. Um, it's a really fascinating story. It's really heartbreaking. Mm. You know, it's like reading this um, as a mom. It's it's mm. it's quite difficult because it brings up questions like what shapes kids and what trauma sticks and what does trauma do to a young developing brain and for you to just give sort of a, a rough sketch, um, you had a really hard relationship with your dad, mm-hmm. who essentially abandoned you. Um, you wanted to be more like your mom because your mom was not your dad, and you were happier playing with girly things. Your dad made you feel really bad about that, and that led to some body dysmorphia, some gender dysphoria, and the combination of those two with your childhood trauma led you to 32 body-altering plastic surgeries, and then you found God. So that is quite a story in and of itself. So when did you first have the sense that you didn't feel right in your own body? So I really had, you know, when I was around about five, um, you know, I was always very girly. So I would prefer girls toys when I was at elementary school. You know, my friends, they were girls. I would like to hang out with them. I would never be interested in sports and the boys activities. So I always felt different to other kids. I didn't feel like I fitted in. Um, and then uh, with my father, I had a very strained relationship. So he was very masculine, very assertive, and he wanted me to be like him, basically. So like a shadow of him. And he wanted me to mold him in his image. And you know, he was always shouting at me. He was always making me feel worthless and my mother. So uh, for me, I kind of grew so detached from him and I didn't want anything to do with him. I wanted to you know, move away from him. But, you know, he was trying to mold me in his image. So um, by the time I got to kind of my teenage years going through puberty, um, I really struggled with, um, firstly, sexuality, because, you know, when you're a teenager, you're discovering yourself, you're very unsure of who you are. And I um, think that that's across the board. Exactly. You know, a lot of kids, a lot of teens, they go through these questions and you know, it's about finding themselves. But what I think is so harmful is when people like adults are trying to tell kids how to feel and how to identify. So, um, so yeah, so I had all that struggle. Then I had a lot of bullying at school. So I used to have kind of, um, man breasts is a condition called gynecomastia. And so when I go swimming, I would get very severely bullied. All the boys would laugh at me as I would go to the pool. So that really stuck with me. So as a swimmer with small breasts, I would look at men like that and go, man, I wish I had <laughs> Wow. Wow. I mean, you know, I, I just wanted to get rid of them at the time. And it so was, was that your first surgery? It was one of the first, one of the first. And that was in Armenia? Yeah. And Where, was was the, the Armenia surgeries, those were your first or second plastic surgery? Um, so that, you paint a picture of mm, your surgical experience in Armenia. Mm, and I was like, note to self, mm, don't get surgery in Armenia. 
Don't go there, Kennedy. It's, um, you know, I took some risks. Basically, I couldn't find a doctor in the UK that would perform these procedures on me because they basically dismissed me, just go to the gym, work out. And I really had tried that. I tried everything. So, I, you know, I flew to Armenia. I found this doctor on Instagram. Yeah. Bad idea. So warning to people, don't find doctors on Instagram. Yeah. And, and you know, it's like you can't really do a very thorough search. You like some of the before and after pictures, but you had bloody tubes in your nipples that he ripped out very painfully and unceremoniously. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't expecting that. So I'd, you know, been in the hospital bed for three days, nearly died on the operating table. It was very traumatic. And then you know, suddenly to have these tubes with a, a drain of blood pulled out of my nipples with no warning, no anesthetic, by the way, when that happened. It was horrific. And, you know, I was shaking. I was in shock for yeah. about an hour after that. And it was it was very traumatic. So, you know, but I at the time, because I've been bullied because of the, my struggles, I felt like that I deserved to be in pain. Like it was a very weird feeling. I felt okay, like I did deserved you th- that. Did you think the pain was somehow cleansing? Do you think that the, the pain were did you rationalize it like, well, this is transformative. Like there's something about this pain that's going to change me. Yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, I had to go through these trials and tribulations, this pain to get to this kind of idea of happiness. Mm -hmm. And I was always chasing that happiness. I just thought, you know, one more fix. I'm going to feel good. I'm going to feel happy. And it was never enough. That was always a temporary fix. And I think that's what a lot of young people feel these days. They, you know, change one thing about themselves and then happy for a little time. Then they want to change more. Yeah. And, And that's very common with people who have body dysmorphia, which is very hard to treat. And it's very... Body dysmorphia to me is very heartbreaking because you can't see what other people see. And it doesn't matter what you do and what you go through. Your brain does not register the actual image. And and you are projecting something. And, and I had a very good friend who had body dysmorphic disorder and was suicidal at several points in her life. Thank God she, she did not take her own life. But she ended up going to a very long-term inpatient treatment program because nothing else like you know she had tried antidepressants and antipsychotics and all sorts of talk therapy and it wasn't working for her but is there something about the intersection between body dysmorphia and gender dysphoria that is understudied and that that is so overwhelming that it's almost impossible to obtain treatment for it yeah, there's really no treatment for it. And, you know, I even had antidepressants when I was around 16 and it doesn't treat it. And it's a very severe thing. You know, people, unless you've been through body dysmorphia, nobody can explain it to you because it's like you look in the mirror, you put yourself down, you always feel there's an issue and it takes over your mind. That's all you think about all day. So then if you pair that with gender dysphoria, which you know I have certainly had, and I think a lot of young people have that combination of they don't feel like they look good enough or they mm-hmm. don't feel good enough. And then they start to question themselves. So I think it leads to other roads like a severe gender dysphoria that's definitely linked. But there's no there's no help for that. There's nothing you can do because, you know, no matter what treatments you do, you can't convince that person that they are fine the way no, they it's, are. No, it's not, it's not mm. a rational conversation. Mm. 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 And, you know, it's like you try and apply these, these rational like, no, I love you. You're great. Mm. Just love yourself the way I love you. It doesn't work that way. Mm. You know, anyone who's suffered from that or OCD, like your rational systems don't apply to a brain that is has undergone trauma and you know it's like mental illness is not accessible in the way that you know maybe you would treat your normal challenges yeah and you know i always had like my mother for instance she'd always say i looked great i was perfect just the way i was but 
I would never see it. No matter what other people said, I would never see it. I was always so self-critical and it mm. really consumed me. So then I started on this surgical journey and it became a very severe addiction. Is that addiction. an addiction itself? Severe addiction, yeah. I mean, if you've got body dysmorphia and gender dysphoria, that's like probably the worst thing you can do because it's just going to make it worse. You're never going to be satisfied. Mm. Never. And so, there's always know. like another surgery you can do. Like maybe if I try mm. this and, you know, you talk about going to Korea and wanting to look like a softened K-pop star. Yes, yeah, and, yeah. And, Korean woman, yeah. which is, that's certainly a bit unusual. A right turn in the journey. Yeah. Now, how did that happen? So that basically happened. So it was um, 2013. I went to become an English teacher in Korea. And um, that was the first time I'd really been exposed to plastic surgery because uh, Korea, they have over 1 million surgeries performed a year. It's basically the plastic surgery capital of the world. And everyone looks perfect Take in that, Korea. Turkey. I mean, I have also done a lot in Turkey, but I mean, Korean doctors, they're very good. Um, so, yeah, so it's the plastic surgery capital. So you have this kind of immense pressure to look a certain way in that culture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was living there. I thought, you know, why can't I look like that? Maybe that would solve all of my problems and I'd be happy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would look at billboards of these pop stars. I'd think, you know, why can't I look like that? So I started trying to change my, the way I looked to mm -hmm. have those features. And um, you know, it made me happy temporarily, but it was always, I just needed one more thing. And it was always just one more thing mm -hmm. and then I'd be happy. And it just never seemed to work out. And then, you know, later on, um, again, these gender dysphoria things were back in my mind. And I was like, maybe the reason I'm, I'm chasing the wrong thing, maybe it's because of my gender. And people were telling me, you know, you're very feminine. You've always been like a girl. You know, you are meant to be trans. Yeah, did you get boobies? No, thank goodness. You know, I was—I actually was booked for it. So I was booked for it December last year in Thailand. Um, mm. I did do facial feminization. So I have um, like a really big scar here. I've got uh -huh. scars on the nose, the neck, um, you know, a lot of scars internally as well. Um, so that was a very difficult procedure. When throughout the journey, when you were in the midst of all of this, was there a point where you look back and go, I was happy then. That's when I was happy. I think it's more of a facade. So I think we see a lot of young people, they pretend to be happy or they convince themselves they're happy. So I did actually convince myself, this is amazing. I feel happy. But then after a few months, that feeling would dissipate. And then it was back to square one. It was back to, okay, I need to do more improvements. I still don't feel right. What am I missing in my life? So it was always a temporary happiness, but it was more, you know, convincing myself. And that's what we see a lot of young people do online with their non-binary or trans identities. They are trying to show the world that they're happy when really they're suffering inside. But there, there is so much suffering. And so I see this, I have two daughters, one is 14 and one is 18. And I see it a lot more with the 14 year old. Mm. And they, you know, there is so much emphasis on this, on social media in school, in culture, and, you know, it's like part of it, I grew up at a time where it really wasn't fun to be gay. It was really tough. Like, you were ostracized, and unless you went, like, all in and were part of a community, which very few people had the courage to do because they were so heavily bullied, um, that people just pretended to be straight. And so I was relieved when it was normalized for people to come out and be gay and have same-sex relationships. And, you know, I felt a great sense of relief for all the friends I have in that community who struggled for so long. Um, but then there became, you know, a, a big shift and an emphasis on gender identity. And it, it's almost like that was a way because being straight and certainly being straight and white and being a straight white female is the most boring thing in the world. <laughs> like you couldn't have anything more basic. And it, there's there's a joke among parents like 
my child was so embarrassed to come out as straight to me. <laughs> but when did when did that happen? I mean, because because you compare it to a shift in the Overton window, mm-hmm. and you know the uh, the total abandonment of common sense. Right, because look, if if we've talked about these things ten years ago, we would never dream of doing what's you know what's going on now with kids, the surgeries and the hormones. So people would never have accepted that, but it, that slowly shifted over time. It's been normalised and accepted, and now it's being obviously pushed. Gender into the affirming mainstream. care, care. That's what they like to call it, but it, it's definitely not care. It should be gender affirming abuse because it's you know a child can't make those decisions, and it's actually sad. Well, my worry is, I'm sorry to interrupt you. My worry is, and you know. This is the thing. Like, mm. I know my girls, when it comes to their long-term plans, they're very fickle and they change. Mm. And I'm not saying that's the case with people who suffer from gender dysphoria. I know that is a very real condition. I also know it is not a condition that this many people are in the throes of. And I feel like people are suggestible, especially in adolescence. And it's that suggestibility. People are preying upon them and... It's not right to not be skeptical about some of the more aggressive treatments because when you hear stories about people who have detransitioned, it is heartbreaking because they have had decisions made for them at a time in their lives where they are not in full custody of their rational faculties. And they make decisions, they take puberty blockers and hormones and have surgery that affects the outcome and the long-term happiness of their lives. And that is that part of it is unacceptable and heartbreaking. If you are 18 and those are the decisions that you would like to make with a doctor and with your family, have at it. But before that, I, I, that is something I do have a real problem with. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Yeah, and, you know, there have been, you know, cases throughout history of people that have identified as trans, and, you know, we, we know that, but it's the number of people these days because, you know, there was always a stable number of people, but now it's really skyrocketed, an extra 600,000 people in the U.S. Uh, within the last few years, so there's now 1.6 million Americans identifying as transgender. So we have to look at what is the reason behind that, and it's mm-hmm. not just a coincidence. It, you know, some people try to claim that it's, oh, we're more accepting now, a bit like with, uh, you know, being gay, it's accepting society, people are more willing to come out but it's not that because you know a 13 year old 14 year old they're just discovering themselves they may have questions about life and it's when it's being pushed on them so it's you know whether it's a teacher whether that's from social media or somebody in authority that is telling that child you need to change you're in the wrong body you know it's Mm. putting those ideas in that child's head and confusing them and if you're a kid that's been bullied you know if you've got severe autism and you're struggling to cope with that no, it seems like a, a solution. It seems like a quick fix that, oh, this doctor can give me hormones. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be celebrated. I'm going to be popular. I'm going to feel better. I'm going to feel better. And, you know, that's what a lot of these doctors convince these kids. And, and, you know, they also say that, you know, it prevents child suicide. And that's an argument they use with parents to try and convince them to sign off on the surgeries. I mean, I, I saw that in one of the uh, congressional hearings mm. is this, the care facility said to the parents, would you rather have a live boy or a dead girl. And, you know, it's like when, when you're faced with something that dramatic, of course, parents put their trust in teachers and doctors and medical institutions. And, you know, they defer and say, oh, you're the experts. I'm going to. And now parents are going, 
maybe that's not the right course. Maybe, you know, we should investigate therapy. Maybe we should have family therapy. You know, maybe there are some deep-seated issues in terms of this child's sense of self that have to be targeted. And, and you know, I, I have talked about my therapist from Seattle a lot, Marsha Linehan, who is absolutely brilliant, but she came up with the concept. She came up with dialectical behavioral therapy, but also the concept of radical self-acceptance, mm. which we don't hear enough of because the self is not necessarily gender, but it, it's as though the idea of gender has been projected as, you know, higher than the self. Yeah, I mean, it's not just with the gender identity. We also see a lot of young people, they look at, for instance, influencers and celebrities. They want to become like them. So there's a lot of young people these days, they feel a pressure to change. Mm -hmm. They feel a pressure to become somebody they're not. So it is a wider issue. And I think, like you said, the gender identity is now being projected. And these kids that have these questions or they don't feel good enough, they're being told it's because they're in the wrong gender. And that's the reason. So I think a lot of kids, they grow up in a society where there is a tremendous pressure to change the way you look or to have a special identity. And, you know, it shouldn't be that way. We need to teach kids, like you said, with your therapist, you know, we need this radical self-acceptance to teach people, you know, you are perfect the way you are. Mm -hmm. You don't need to do these changes. Work on your happiness, work on your health. And we should be offering, you know, counseling and mental health support and, you know, giving these kids a sense of community that's not harming them, that's not pushing these things and say, look, it's okay to be different. And, you know, maybe when you become an adult, maybe you generally still feel this way and, you know, maybe you want to go through with this, but that is something you have to do as an adult. And it's a really difficult scenario because when you're trapped in that headspace with gender dysphoria, the only solution to your problems you think is to transition, right? Yeah. So it's and the, the only people mm. who care about you are the ones who are pushing mm. surgery and puberty blockers and all that stuff. But it also, it, it becomes this hyper-focus in society and this really needless war when, you know, in your book, Gender Madness, you say, we could really use a common sense approach and, mm. you know, teach people to love themselves for who they are and not the image they want to project on social media, which... You know, it's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. Um, it, it does a great deal of harm. And, you know, there is a great deal of disconnection. But you reconnected. So where are you now in terms of how you feel about yourself? Um, so basically last year, I, I, you know, I realized that the only way I'm ever going to be happy is to self-accept is to, you know, unlock the old me that was basically trapped inside like in a prison and, you know, bring that person out again and say, look, you are good enough as you are. You don't need to do these changes. Just accept yourself, learn to love yourself. And part of that journey was, you know, for the first time I actually did go to therapy and that was very helpful to talk about these things. So through all the 32 surgeries Mm -hmm. and all the feelings and all the trauma Mm -hmm. and the sense of abandonment and resentment you had for your dad, you never went to therapy. My therapy was going to surgery. That was the thing I thought would help me. Oh, so, you know, it's heartbreaking to me. It's, yeah, it was obviously the wrong approach. But, you know, um, so, yeah, so I started going to therapy and then talking about it. And I never really opened up about what the reasons why I felt this way and the reasons that led me down this path. And then also rediscovering faith. So as a kid at elementary school, we went to a, a Church of England school. Um, but then as a teenager, my father was atheist. So he kind of bashed the religion out of me and just said, you know, there's no such thing as God. So I lost that connection until, you know, last year. And I needed some some guidance. I needed something positive in my life to give me some purpose. And that gave me a sense of purpose. It made me realize, look, you know, learn to love yourself and also follow the teachings of Jesus, do something good for the world, you know, speak Mm -hmm. up for others, because, you know, we all have a voice 
it's not about how many followers we've got. It's about, you know, how many people we can help in life, whether that's one person, whether that's 100 people. So, you know, it gave me a purpose and that has been so fulfilling. Mm -hmm. You know, when I have parents saying thank you for speaking up, you know, it's really helping with our situation and, you know, just giving people advice and stuff. It's very fulfilling. And, Mm. And I think it's helpful for parents to have someone who goes, you know what? You think you have a bad like I have been through it, and mm. and I think that's why you, your book is so helpful. What kind of criticism did you get from your book? So basically, when I announced the book um, initially several months ago, I had trans activists emailing the distributor Simon and Schuster and the publisher Skyhorse Publishing, so they bombarded them with hate, um, really bombarded them, trying to cancel the book. And I've had you know before the book was released, all the trans activists leaving one star reviews saying it's the worst book ever. One of them compared my book to Hitler's book, like just really horrible stuff. And it's like the book wasn't even out. And, you know, I've really tried hard with this book to make it sensitive because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I understand what these people are going through. You know, some adults generally do want to be trans and that's their choice. So, you know, I'm trying to bridge a gap, you know, bridge, have a middle ground because I think, you know, trans people and women and parents, they need to come together and have a conversation. And that's what I'm trying to do. So I think that's extremely, extremely important. And, you know, just to give parents a little bit of guidance and yeah. also to tell young people that no matter what you're going through, whatever hurdles you face, you can always overcome them and just work, learn to love yourself and work on yourself. Yeah, and and that's hard. Like, mm. like accessing the trauma, it's really difficult. It mm. is a hard thing to mm. do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when I first saw Marsha in 1998, she was like, I can give you skills or pills. Mm. And I was like, what does that mean? She goes, well, you know, because I had, panic and anxiety she said i can give you something that will take the panic away but the second you stop taking the pills and you come up against trauma in your life you'll get panic attacks again but if i if you learn the skills and rewire your brain mm. with the dialectical and behavioral therapy that will last a lifetime and it's very true and i'm constantly going back to the skills and the hardest part was accessing you know the things that you bury inside of you the mm. things that have happened to you that you become ashamed of Mm. and it's not until you are with a therapist that you can trust that, you know, you open yourself up and and you can really start to heal all of that. And we are in a mental health crisis right now. These things are happening concurrently and we have to see that they are connected and we have to give kids more access to that kind of mental health care and then deal with the other stuff and some of the distractions a little later in life. But Mm. no matter what people had gone through before the pandemic, the pandemic was incredibly traumatic, especially for adolescents. And, you know, when I read about some of the bullying that you underwent when you were trying to reach people and and Mm. make them happy and Mm. be a K-pop star and and be full of joy and, and people tearing you down, it really breaks my heart. Yeah, but that was also one of the driving factors. So, you know, when people tried to tear me down, it reminded me of the bullies at school. So then I would continue changing myself even more because I think, you know, maybe one day I can defeat these bullies. Maybe I can feel beautiful. Maybe they'll accept me. And, you know, it's interesting that when I, you know, generally came out as publicly trans, all the bullying stopped. And they were so nice to me. They were so sweet. And, you know, finally I had that validation acceptance. So when you have that for the first time in your life, you've got that acceptance. It's very hard to detransition and come out of that because that's what we see with detransitioners. You know, their whole community around them is uplifting them. It's reaffirming their gender. Mm -hmm. So if you suddenly come out of that and, you know, kind of wake up and say, this isn't for me, all of those people suddenly turn against you. It sounds like coming out of a cult. I mean, I always compare it to a cult because it is, I mean, with the radical trans activists, 
they are very hateful towards detransitions, and that's why you only see a limited number of them speaking publicly. You know, on Fox News, you've had obviously Chloe Cole and Layla Jane mm-hmm. and other ones, but um, there is a detransition group on Reddit which has fifty thousand members. So there's a lot out there, and mm-hmm. the thing is, these clinics they hide the data; they don't check on these people. So you know, they'll always say there's a one percent detransition rate. There's certainly not. It's certainly a lot higher than that. Yeah. But a lot of these kids, they you know, they don't go back to the hospitals because they, they're not going to do anything, right? Mm. Do you still feel like a leper, or are you Lazarus? Um, yeah, so I don't feel like a leper anymore. I really did at the time. But again, part of finding faith was connecting with a, a community that's kind. You know, the Christian community, they were very sweet, very welcoming and you know, non-judgmental. And I think we all need a nice community, whether it's Christian community, whether it's, you know, something else. Maybe we're playing soccer and we've got a nice community around us. You know, I think we all need that to uplift us. And, you know, it can take us away from the things that are consuming us, you know, mm-hmm. body dysmorphia, gender dysphoria, and just make us realize that none of that matters if we can learn to accept ourselves mm. that is the thing and it's a really difficult thing to do because you know I'm, I'm saying that now i've been for it but for a young person all they think about is their own struggle their own identity yeah. so it's hard to get out of that headspace but like you said you know going through repressed memories and opening them up and, and confronting them i think that's a very helpful solution yes. you know that's what i did i went through these memories that i hadn't thought about for 10 15 years and opened them up i was like you know what i've been through this but i need to deal with it and then i need to be stronger is it still a process, an ongoing process for you? It is. But, you know, every day I wake up, I'm very blessed. I feel very happy. I feel very grateful. Yeah. You know, I'll take a nice walk. I'll exercise. And exercise is a great thing for your mental health as well. But um, I feel positive every day because I feel like I'm able to help others and, you know, give people advice and speak to people. And, and that's why this, this book for me was therapy. It was rekindling these old memories, talking about them and you know, with the hope of helping, you know, other people that are being through yeah. this, regardless whether it's gender or whether it's something else, you know, I think everybody can find themselves and learn to love themselves. Do you ever wake up and want more plastic surgery? No. Are you done? I, I'm done. So I, I completely quit. So after the facial feminization, I was like, I'm done because firstly, you know, I was probably going to die. I had some close calls with the anesthetic and stuff and you know, the more you do that, the more risky it is. Um, and secondly, I've just, you know, I realize it's not important. And sure, you know, I do a few non-surgical things, a bit of Botox here and there, you sure. know, because why not? <laughs> Some lasers. Nobody wants wrinkles. needling with PRP. I'm a fan. <laughs> I think most of us are. But, you know, it's about just realizing that we don't need to do these things to be happy. I'm so happy now. I'm the happiest I've ever been. Are you so, in a relationship? Um, no, I mean, I would like to, I would like to even, you know, whether it's a man or a woman, it depends on the person, like if they're oh, a Oh, you person, got great odds. <laughs> Man, Ollie. Keep, keep the options open, but <laughs> right. honest, I'm so focused on, you know, the activism now and speaking out for parents and kids and stuff. So you know, that can all, all come later, but you know, maybe one day. <laughs> Man, today might be the day. Oh, wow. Ollie London, Gender Madness. Um, I really loved reading your book. I want to hear more about your journey as it mm-hmm. unfolds, because I have a feeling your life is going to continue to be very, very interesting. Yeah, thank you very much, Kennedy. And you know, I hope this book helps people. I've had a lot of positive reviews and it's people have read it so far and they said it's you know, it's helping them. So that's really important to me. Beautifully yeah. done. Ollie London. Thanks, Kennedy. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been Kennedy Saves the World. I'm Kennedy. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Oh, go ahead and leave me a review while you're there. I'd love to hear what you have to say. You've been listening to Kennedy Saves the World on the Fox News Podcast Network. 
This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. 